We The People Live is brought to you by AT&T. You can enjoy unlimited entertainment with unlimited data from AT&T. Don't settle for any unlimited data plan. Only the AT&T Unlimited Plus plan comes with HBO included. Learn more at att.com slash unlimited. After 22 gigabytes of data usage, AT&T may slow speeds. Credits for HBO start within two bills. Channels available are subject to change. Charges, other usage and restrictions apply, of course. See att.com slash unlimited for details. Today's episode of We The People Live is brought to you by Open Account, which is a podcast that gets personal about making and losing and living with money. It's created by Umpqua Bank, hosted by Suchin Park, and its new season starts on June 30th. That's Open Account, so subscribe today, download past episodes of Open Account, wherever you get your podcasts. G'day humans, welcome to We The People Live, the discussion show for planet Earth, the place that makes debate healthy again. I'm Josh Zepps. Of all of the things that we have to concern ourselves with in the world at the moment, from Trump to climate change to whatever, part of the backdrop to it all is the crisis in the Muslim world that first came to our attention in a big way on 9-11 and that we've grappled with how to deal with and how to talk about since. And I love this episode because I love having conversations that go in all kinds of interesting directions around this one big central theme. What the what we do about Islam and how do we talk about it in ways that are non-Islamophobic, if that's even a word, but that recognize without bullshitting around the reality of the crisis that exists at the fringe of that faith, whatever our complicity in creating that crisis, Iraq war, funding lots of dictators and so on. And one man who really helps me get my head around all of this is Ali Rizvi, who grew up in Libya and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan before moving to Canada and the US when he was 24. He writes about secularism in the Muslim world. He speaks about being an atheist Muslim, and that is the title of his book, The Atheist Muslim, A Journey from Religion to Reason. Can Islam be reformed? What should we make of the headscarf? And what is the real impact of terrorism? What is terrorism fundamentally? If you like conversations like this, then consider getting an ad-free version of the podcast, being alerted to live events in advance of everybody else, and having access to special bonus content by doing your bit to actually fund the production of this show by going to patreon.com slash WTP and becoming a citizen of We The People Nation. If you're a frequent listener to podcasts, then you know already how to support this show. You know that going to iTunes and leaving a review helps. You know that rating the show helps. You know that subscribing to the show in iTunes helps. If you can spare a moment today to do any one of those things, that would be greatly appreciated. In the meantime, enjoy. Ali Rizvi. This is We The People Live. Ali, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Josh Steps. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, let's let's talk about uh, about Facebook and social media to begin with, because there have been uh, this. I wanted to speak to you specifically because I'm I'm currently in Australia hosting a radio show on ABC Radio, which is sort of like Australia's BBC, and I wanted to do a segment about how Facebook had been taking down these accounts of ex-Muslim groups, and that there was this conflict between freedom of speech for ex-Muslims and Muslim dissidents and Muslim feminists to congregate online, to, to create supportive communities for each other, and the desire of people behind institutions like Facebook to prevent the spread of what they regard as hate speech and what Islamist groups complain is, um, uh, you know, uh, anti-Muslim speech, Islamophobic speech. 
And when I pitched this as a story to do on the radio, one of the producers said, but that's pretty Islamophobic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which made me realize it's not just yeah. Facebook that has this problem. This is inculcated in the minds of, of well-meaning white liberals all over the place. Uh, where, does, where, does this, where does this problem stand? Well, the Facebook um, issue is a little bit more complicated than that. I, I don't even know if it's actually agenda-driven right, in terms of the Islamophobia and everything. I, I, a lot of it's just automated. Um, they have, I guess, so many followers that if enough people complain about a post or if enough, enough people report a page or a post, then uh, their algorithm just takes a page down. So this uh, this has happened to um, uh, a page called, actually, it's, it's the largest athea- online group for atheists it's called Atheist Republic. And it's got over 1.6 million followers. And the founder, uh, who's a really good friend of mine, is Armin Nababi, who is an Iranian uh, ex-Muslim. So he used to be an Islamist in Tehran. And uh, now now he, he, he lives in Canada. And he started this page. And what started happening was that uh, people in many Muslim-majority countries know about this algorithm. So they organize uh, these, you know, just mass reports of this page. So loads of them will get together and report the page by the hundreds and thousands. I mean, there are actual Facebook pages where these people get together to report pages <laughs> that they don't like. So they're called... The uh, irony of getting together to build a Facebook page to take down other Facebook pages, which is saying things that you don't like. Right. I mean, there's a Facebook page, for instance, that says, uh, you know, the, the, the pages are called something like Take Down Anti-Islam Posts. Um, and uh, they've got thousands of members. They all get together. They they post a page there. Everybody goes and mass reports it, and uh, the algorithm, the Facebook algorithm, uh, essentially takes it down. And then uh, what we did was uh, we actually did get in touch with some people at Facebook, or people who who we know work there, um, and uh, we made them aware of this problem. So now Atheist Republic is back, but a lot of the smaller pages who don't have friends and contacts who work at Facebook. Um, have still been taken down. And, and it's really unfortunate because uh, Facebook is actually the, the forum where a lot of uh, dissidents and a, a lot of sort of politi- uh, political dissidents in countries where they're oppressed and where they're censored, uh, they get together. I mean, as you know, the Egyptian revolution that was started by the, I mean, the, mm. uh, the Tahrir Square protest started by Wild Ghanim started on Facebook. He even said that I want to shake Mark Zuckerberg's hand. Um, now the situation's a little bit different. I mean, that's, that's the exact thing that's being cracked down. I mean, aren't there, when you complain about a page, aren't there checkboxes that you have to check as to why it's uh, offensive? And couldn't you just make it the case that if, like, couldn't you just make, put religion out of the bounds of the, uh, of what is considered hate speech? It's like this idea that, you know, Dawkins always talks about, you can't offend ideas. Religions are a set of, are a set of ideas. You can be denigrating towards groups of people, and maybe you can maybe that should be impermissible. But they should have different checkboxes for like this page is hate speech against individual human beings and is threatening towards human beings' lives versus this offends me because it offends a set of ideas. And if it's the latter, that shouldn't be grounds to complain about a page. And if they claim that it's the former, but it's actually the latter, then Facebook should have mechanisms to quickly resolve that and realize that it's actually not. A hate speech page it's just ex-muslims they do to some extent and the, like i said the atheist republic page is back the ex-muslims of north america page was also taken down uh in the same way um 
But uh, I, I think that that will, first of all, I don't think the people reporting this really care. They, the, when they have to check boxes, they could even check something like this page promotes violence. They, no, they, but that would, that would be a quicker thing not, to falsify. That would be a quicker thing for Facebook to falsify. Right, right. Okay, so uh, the the thing is, I, I guess the way that they, I'm not sure exactly how they report it, but to, to be able to differentiate between, say, someone um, m- making fun of Islam as a religion versus someone uh, demonizing Muslims, for an algorithm to differentiate between the two, I think, I, I don't think they figured it out yet. I'm pretty sure it's possible. It should be possible. I, I mm. wish that that distinction was a lot more clear. But as you said, when you took the idea of your show or your segment that you wanted to do um, and, and and they told you it was Islamophobic, I mean, the, these are real people who still think this way. So Yeah, that's the deeper problem. I, so I let's talk know. about that problem because this, this so, is a yeah, problem. We, we have to, yeah, no, it'll take a while for it to get to uh, the algorithms. The thinking goes, the vast majority of Muslims are peaceful people and happy being Muslims and don't want to not be Muslims. Therefore, to give voice to a tiny minority of agitators who claim that Islam is coercive and that we need to create safe spaces for ex-Muslims is to tar and denigrate an entire Muslim, an entire population of more than a billion people who are getting on with their lives and living largely peacefully with one another. What's wrong with that point of view, which is, I guess, the best I can do to channel what my producer was thinking? It's a very nice uh, way to put things. It makes us feel really good. It's just not true. And the people who are um, giving Islam a bad name and associating Islam with terrorism and violence are not people like you and me uh, or people who criticize Islam or write books about it or put up memes on Facebook. They're actually the terrorists. The, the terrorists, the people who do this, they're going out there and uh, well, let's look at it from a non-Muslim's point of view. A non-Muslim, last couple of years, they watch TV. And they see Paris, they see Brussels, they see San Bernardino, uh, they see Orlando, and and on and on and on. Nice, and uh, they they see these people saying Allahu Akbar and killing people. They see them quoting verses from the Quran, the words of which actually match the actions literally, uh, and they see. These terrorists, the, the people who are committing these actions, associating the religion with terrorism. Now, the reaction is that, you know, you you say, okay, this is terrible. There is a common denominator here. All of them, they have, you know, the underwear bomber was black. Jose Padilla was Hispanic. You know, the the Boston Marathon bombers were literally came from the, the North Caucasus, like the the, the the place where Caucasians are named for, right? <laughs> that's that's where they came from. So so there is obviously not a racial component. I mean, there's not a racial common denominator. It's it, There's only one common denominator. It's Islam. And no matter how liberal you are and how much of a hippie you are, in your mind, you're going to recognize that. So you go and you ask your nice, moderate Muslim neighbor, guys here, by all means, peaceful. All they want is the best for their kids. They want the same thing that you do. And you ask them and they tell you, well, no, no, that's not real Islam. What these terrorists are doing, this does not represent um, me. And then you ask them about the verses in the Quran. Well, you know, it does say this in the Quran. Do you believe this stuff is a word of God? They're like, well, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, the Quran is a word of God. That I agree with. So, so they 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 revere the same book that uh, those the extremists are using to justify murder. And this is very confusing for someone who's non-Muslim. So, for the non-Muslim, I mean, they can 
not everyone's going to go around and look at the misinterpretations and a metaphor and really beat your wife. Actually, it really means kiss your wife in classical Arabic. And these are not the kinds of things that that uh, the average person is going to delve into when there are bombs going off every other week. So um, this this is a problem. Anybody who says it's the media and it's it's uh, Islamophobes and it's people not giving unopened Diet Coke cans to people who want them. Or you know whatever the issue is. What's the unopened? What's the unopened diet coke? No, you don't analogy? know that story. No, I didn't. Know uh, there, there, was a, there was a lady. Diet. There was a there was a Muslim lady who was on a plane and uh, she requested an unopened diet coke can because usually they open it and give it to you, and the flight attendant refused and and she 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 wore a headscarf and she was very obviously Muslim so, um, that became an issue and she said something rudely, um, and. It became a big sort of Islamophobia story. It, it, it's, you know, Why and, did she and need people it are concerned about it. She just had a, uh, I guess, you know, some people are, they, they don't want people breathing on an open Coke and, you know, things like that. The, <laughs> the germophobia. So I, only I, I Islam is, is germophobic. I can't remember the story. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that that, that had anything. This has nothing to do with Islam. Yeah. Okay, but it, it, she was as visibly Muslim and, and she felt discriminated against. And she probably was. I mean, apparently the flight attendant said something that was that was rude that had to do with her appearance. Oh, I see. Um, or if take I'm remembering fuck, Take the fucking coke, anything. you fucking towelhead. You're not supposed to say that if you're working on an airline. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's inappropriate. Yeah. Now, now, I don't remember the incident clearly at this point. I'll probably have to Google it and I'll, I'll send you a correction if there needs to be one. But... Um, there was some issue like that, and it was it, it became a sort of a, a big incident about, you know, how the flight attendant was Islamophobic and didn't give her an unopened diet cocaine. So but anyway, when, getting when you back talk about to the, the about the the, court, the verses in the Quran that say barbaric mm-hmm. things, the the standard response is, well, yeah, there are crazy things in all kinds of holy texts. They're heavily contradictory, but what's relevant is the lived experience of most people who actually interpret. The, the text and that that to regard those uh, those passages of the Quran that appear to be barbaric as being literal instructions on what you should do makes you know better than ISIS. That's basically the way that they want to think about Islam. But the way that Islam is actually enacted in the real lives of Muslims around the world every day is to fudge or ignore those passages in the Quran and to and, regard and it as being a, a religion of peace. That, that's perfectly fair. That's That's right in the sense that uh, most Muslims are, are not the kind of people who are going to go and follow the, the most violent things in the Quran and go out and you know commit these acts or or you know have multiple wives or behead disbelievers. However, just a question: Do you know any Jewish people who eat bacon? Yes, you do. Okay, so I, I know a lot <laughs> of Jewish people who eat bacon, like a lot of them. Uh, yeah. So I could say that you know, hey, listen, most of my Jewish friends eat bacon, so Judaism is okay with bacon. Would that be accurate? No, I mean, just because a lot of people are eating bacon doesn't mean that suddenly the, the Torah and the, you know, the Jewish religion is now okay with bacon. And that's, uh, that, that's a distinction. I mean, you, when we talk about a religion, you can talk about it in two ways. I mean, you can talk about it, uh, you can judge it by the actions of its adherents, right? Or you can judge it by the content of its canonical texts and I think that the one thing we can have a conversation around, the one thing that's accepted by all, what all of the adherents actually say, um, binds them together, 
is a canonical text in the, in the sense that for, for Muslims, it is a Quran. They will all say positive things about the Quran. Now, most of them don't really know all the contents of the Quran. Most of them were just born into Muslim families and they grew up. They were taught that the Quran is the word of God. Most of them haven't even read it. The majority of Muslims in the world don't even know the language of the Quran, the Arabic. Right? They don't even speak it. The largest populations of Muslims in the world are in Indonesia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Turkey, Iran. You know, these are people, these are non-Arabic speaking societies. So um, when, when I talk about Islam, this is how I talk about it in my book. When I talk about Islam, I talk about uh, Islam as it's codified in the Quran and to some extent the Hadith, which is the traditions of the Prophet uh, Muhammad. Um, and when I talk about Muslims as people, I talk about what you're what you're saying. You know, the, the group that's not a monolith, where there's a lot of diversity. They're very, very, uh, you know, liberal, progressive, secular-minded Muslims, and they're extremely conservative, fundamentalist Muslims as well. So I, I think that distinction is really, really important. You know, Islam right, but is, is an but idea. Is, aren't there more distinctions than just that? There is the distinction between Islam as an ideal. And I take your point that, you know, I, I think it's a well-made point that the, the extent to which moderate religious people of any faith are moderate is not because they're hewing more closely to the, to their religion. It's because they're just ignoring bits of the religion. They're ignoring so People exactly. talk about how, like, oh, most, you know, most religious people aren't crazy. Most religious people think religion is a perfectly amenable and acceptable framework for life in the 21st century. Yeah, of course right. they do, because they're just ignoring the vast swathes of it that aren't, and they're adapting it and squeezing it and shoehorning it into the into the ideologies and the and the, and the systems of thought that we that the Enlightenment and that the non and that non-religious people have developed over the past. Well, see, the Enlightenment century. is a good example. The, the this idea that you know everybody talks about how the Western world or the United States is is founded on Judeo-Christian values. Well, no, it's actually founded on ignoring Judeo-Christian values the way they used to be and really diluting it and and uh, just thinning this out, thinning it out, taking it out of the you know the affairs of the state, establishing secularism, and uh, and and just leaving this diluted remnant of it and and by essentially ignoring um, the religious tenets and that's how um, we ended up today. With the kind of Christianity that the, that you have in the U.S., mm. um, so and even if some of the people who were doing that work of uh, of creating a non-religious secular uh, system of government and, and and worldview, even if they were religious, because you'll often hear people religious people retort that well, the founding fathers were religious. A lot of them weren't really theists. They were they were deists. They wouldn't they wouldn't they would have right. no truck with the way that religion is understood in the religious parts of America now. But even even if they were, they were still committed to the to the life principle of creating secular institutions that were that were separate from from religion. But just coming back to your point about different about disentangling our concerns about Muslims from what you call sort of Islam, meaning the Quran and to some extent the Hadith, isn't the problem also, though, that there are so many different, there is no Vatican in Islam. So there is no decree about what the Quran is supposed to mean and how it's supposed to be interpreted and which bits of it that are contradictory with other bits ought to trump each other, which means that if you're a Wahhabi, Salafi, Saudi uh, cleric, then your understanding mm -hmm. of the pure ultimate good in Islam, of what Islam truly is in its most hypothetical, abstract sense that we should all be aspiring towards, is very different from if you're an Indonesian, 
I don't know. What's the, I'm having a brain fart and can't remember the mystical strand of, uh, is, is it Sufi? Sufism? Yeah, Sufi. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, Sufi. A, a, a much more kind of hippy dippy, lovey dovey, crystal dangling uh, strand of <laughs> Islam, <laughs> then, it, which is not necessarily any further away from the tenets of the Hadith and the Quran, but it's just a, a radically different strand in the same way that there might be different strands of Christianity, like, I don't know, Episcopalianism mm -hmm. and Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I think that that's that's true. I mean, and those are not the people that really bother us, and they're not the people that we're really worried about. Um, that's true. The true. people that we're worried about are, are the people who have the, uh, the the sort of literalists who actually take the words and look at what they mean. Um, and 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 you know, the, this whole thing, the, this is really a very unique phenomenon when it comes to holy texts. Just the fact that you can interpret it any way that you want to. I mean, you can't do that with Alice in Wonderland. You can't do that with, if my book, right, my book gets put out there, everybody's going to read it. They're going to quote it. They're going to screen cap and tweet stuff and hold me to every word in my book. And I'm not God. I'm not divine. Oh, I might be. <laughs> but the, if you've got any, pants, I, I'm not, if you've got a dog, then you're divine to the dog. <laughs> that, yeah, I know. <laughs> Um, but uh, they're going to hold me to every word, hold me accountable for every word that I've written in the book. And uh, they're going to say, you know, what does this mean? And I have to answer for that. I, for some reason, this doesn't apply to religious texts. I mean, you can have the same sentence mean two completely different things because the people who are looking at it uh, were born into this religion. It's part of their identity. They don't want to let go. And they don't want this to mean something they don't want to mean that that mm. that doesn't work for them because it's infallible it's a word of god it's it's either all true or it's all not so if you find something in it that disturbs you you have to find a way and just do all these uh, mental and linguistic gymnastics to to make it palatable to you right so it, it's a again you know this is a unique phenomenon when it comes to holy text the second thing i would say is that when people say that this is open to interpretation that is the claim of a lot of moderate Muslims that you know the scripture is open to interpretation. Well, your Wahhabi Salafi people, they also have an interpretation, and that makes it plausible. That makes it just as possible, uh, plausible, right? So, so if uh, if the interpretation of Raza Aslan is legitimate, then so does the inter so is the interpretation of someone who's super super conservative. Um, yeah, and if an alien and so it, it's came problematic down to either way. and just read the Quran had to decide whether or not who, who is the who is the closest embodiment of the spirit of this text, Reza Aslan or ISIS. They'd go with ISIS. Uh, yeah, probably because uh, ISIS it's uh, ISIS follows it to the word. And, and and this is a problem with I mean, you know, the, one of the things with the reform movement is part of the reform movement. There's some parts of it I agree with, but part of it is the scriptural, this initiative to reinterpret scripture and present alternative, nicer, you know, more secular, um, revisionist interpretations of scripture. And, and this is something that I don't really think stands a chance. I don't think it's sustainable because Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who has a PhD, a doctorate in Islamic studies, and this is the caliph of ISIS, the head of ISIS, um, he's actually studied the Quranic scripture. Like he, he's an expert on the words, he's memorized it. Uh, and if you go up to him suddenly and you start saying, no, you know, the, you know, the roots of this word actually mean this and this is how you should interpret it, he's going to laugh in your face. 
Like you, you don't stand a chance. So someone like Reza Aslan or some, some of these sort of moderate South Asian, non-Arabic speaking, self-styled Quranic scholars, when they go up against these fundamentalist guys who've actually read every word and they've devoured it since childhood. Um, but Ali, surely that's convinced. that's an unfair comparison because we don't expect the we don't expect to vanquish the problem of Islamist extremism and jihadism by convincing the the head of ISIS to change his mind. The question is the disenfranchised young uh, Muslim British kid in Birmingham who is going to a local mosque that's being funded with radical Saudi petro dollars and with a an imam who is spouting the same sort of stuff that that promotes ISIS's worldview, is there a way to get to him? Because he, this kid doesn't yet know the ins and outs of the Quran and is amenable to alternative interpretations. The way to get to them uh, is to get them to think differently. So this is what, this is what I think about reform. I don't think Islam, the religion, can be reformed. I, I just don't. I don't think that's going to happen when you have immutable scripture. Uh, and let, but I think that Muslims, the way that Muslims think, especially young Muslims think. I think that is amenable to reform. If you, if you, but what's uh, the difference? I mean, the religion is nothing more than the, the, the way that it is enacted by the people who claim to believe in it. Right. I mean, just look at what's happened to Christianity and Judaism over the, over the past few centuries. You just said, how many Jews do I know who eat, eat bacon? Well, a lot. Mm. I mean, that's because Jews have just ceased taking their holy texts to that seriously. And the, and the Jews who are the most problematic for all of us are the ones who do take their holy texts still with the same literalism as they were taken thousands of years ago and refuse to stop bulldozing Palestinians' homes and building illegally on, on land that's not theirs, right? And same with yeah, Christianity. Yeah. My grandmother's version of Christianity is, is, is very far from the, the, the literalism of the text. So isn't there an expectation that Islam might be able to do the same thing? Um, when it comes to the interpretation of the text and, and redefining it, I think that's a really, really tough call. And I'll explain to you why. So th- this is going to take a little bit of a backstory. I'll try not to take too long. So, so w- when I was growing up, we didn't have the internet, right? Yes, I am that old. Uh, the uh, I was it was in the eighties. Uh, we had the Quran, or the Arabic Quran, at the highest point in our house. So it was at the top of a tall bookshelf in the living room. Uh, it was wrapped up in a scented cloth. Uh, you weren't allowed to touch it unless you did something called wudu, which is a uh, an ablution washing ritual that's supposed to cleanse the body and the soul. Uh, if you're a, a woman who, who was menstruating, you weren't able to touch it. You, we used to kiss the Quran, the book. Uh, used to when you read it in Arabic, you recited in Arabic. You could have recited recitation competitions. You'd win prizes for it. When your child finished it for the first time, you'd have a huge celebration. You'd hold it over the heads of brides and grooms as they got married, right? And nobody knew what it meant. So if you came up to me at that time and you asked me, I'm like, oh, you know, what is it? Did you know that you're allowed to have sex with slaves out of wedlock in the in, in Islam? And I would say, well, sh- where is it in the Quran? And you're like, well, it's in the Quran. I'd have to go and I'd have to spend hours looking through my paperback copy of the Quran. I'd probably just have one translation. Uh, I'd have to go in and I'd have to find all of those individual things. There was no index in it. Some of them had indexes, but none of them really said sex slavery at the end because they, they were printed inside. You know, that's not the way that... Uh, Page 123 for sex slavery. Page 123. Exactly. Right. So, so, so what you do is I'd have to go through hours. I'd have to find maybe one or two verses. You know what it is? And I was taught growing up 
by my parents who also had never read the Quran in completion in their own language or with understanding that this was the infallible word of God. Okay, so now fast forward to the internet, right? There's a website called the Quran Corpus or the Corpus Quran, something like that. Uh, you go in, if you want to find out about the sex slavery verses, you can, a 12 year old kid can go there, Google by keyword, find um, multiple translations in multiple languages. They can hover over the Arabic word and see what the translation of that word literally is. They can look at the syntax and grammar and they can delve into that. Um, th th there's so much you can do. It's completely exposed. And this is why I think we're seeing right now a whole bunch of kids you know, who are growing up and their parents have told them the Quran is the word of God. They don't know anything about it. They've never read it because they're from a different generation. These kids are going online and they're reading this stuff. They're reading what's actually in the book in a way that I never did. And millions of kids, kids from my generation never did. And they're they're seeing in just with stark clarity what the contents are. Then they're going to their parents and they're saying, well, you know, you told me this was the word of God. It says this. And their parents are like, oh, it's misinterpreted. They can't give him a good explanation. Then they go to some ISIS guy and the ISIS guy tells them exactly what the wording is. They're like, this is what it is. This is the infallible word of God. Do you believe it or not? And then there are some that say, okay, no, I can't believe this. I can't take this. And that's why you have a fast growing ex-Muslim community. Many people are either completely leaving it and other people going the complete fundamentalist route. So a lot of this really has to do with exposure, just the fact that it's the, the contents of the book are exposed in a way that they never were before. And that's why it's under scrutiny. You know, I mean, we are at a very different point now than we were. You know, the, when Salman Rushdie, when he wrote a book, they burned his book and they sent him into hiding for 10 years. Right? It's, or, you know, when there was a cartoon drawn even 10 years ago, the Danish cartoons happen. Now you have loads of cartoons. You have lots of people blaspheming. And uh, it, it's not the same situation it was before because all of the contents are out there. So so it takes a lot more convincing right, for that. Are you saying that it would be easier to, to do the Danish cartoons and for them not to be plunged into hiding today than it was 10 years ago? That there's greater freedom of speech when it comes to criticizing Islam? More than the Danish card at that time compared to now? Yes, I, I, I think so. I, I think that uh, Salman Rushdie is obviously a lot freer than he was before. If you go online and you look at the everyday, everybody draw Muhammad Day cartoons, there, there are literally thousands and thousands of Muhammad cartoons online. There's so many people, and you know, you have that hashtag spread the risk. And I think that worked. I mean, they don't really know who to target anymore. Well, the, um, the, I mean, their solution is just to target everybody. So you have you have Ariana yes. Grande concerts in Manchester exploding and trucks being plowed into people on London bridges. And yeah, yeah, you have that happening. And, and you know, I, not to downplay the situation, I think that it's uh, it's horrible. It's happening over and over again. Uh, they are now just driving trucks into crowds, and it's horrendous. There's a there's a huge death count. But um, there's another way to look at it: is that uh, you know you have more of these lone wolf attacks. You don't have a central kind of organization the kind of thing you had for the 9-11 attacks or the kind of things that you had for the for the british subway the the, the tube attacks right on on uh, the july 7th time mm. uh, you, you don't have that now now what they're doing is they're you know you've got an underwear bomber who's failed you have a times square guy Faisal shazad who failed you've got people driving uh, trucks into places you've got uh be, i mean even death counts it's, it's obviously one death is too many when it comes to this and the fear is Obviously, the terror is as, as, as stark as ever. 
but the methods that they're using and the lack of communication they have and, and the, the the decentralization of it and just the fact that there's all these lone actors just working with improvised devices at home is a uh, that, that's it's definitely this is I hate to use the word improvement here. It's just like you heard it here first, board, folks. Ali yeah. Risby thinks there's no problem with terrorism and that terrorism is just fine. You are a monster, well, I, sir. You are a well, monster. How let dare me, you? Uh, let me get to the second part of it. But what yep. my uh, one point I wanted to get at, and uh, though I thought we'd get to it later on, but I'm going to bring it now since I've just talked about how you know, terrorism is not as bad as it was before, or the intensity. There's a way that in, in which it's much worse. And that goes back to your Islamophobia thing. Terrorism isn't just about bombs and bodies. It's not just about explosions and people dying here and there. As you know, you know, the apologists are like, well, you know, you're more likely to die in a bathtub than you are in a terrorist attack. You have all of those things. Obviously, those are stupid arguments because they don't take into account the ideological narrative that drives all this stuff. But terrorism works in much more covert ways. So, for instance, you were talking about the Islamophobia. You were talking about the, the, the producer that you tried to pitch your segment to. I get messages from white liberals in the U.S. who've been seeing this stuff over the last few years, especially since Paris. And they tell me that, they're like, you know, I agree with you, but man, I can't say what you say. Mm. So I'm really glad that you say it because, you know, I come from that background. I've come from a, from a Muslim, from a Pakistani background. Uh, I have yeah, you look like you'd get me. picked out of a lineup at the airport at the TSA, right? Whereas I'd I'd, yeah. I'd read straight through, so I can't say it. Yeah. But I do say it anyway. But you're right that it's difficult. <laughs> I get a lot of shit when I do. Yeah, so I mean, but that's one of the most common messages I get. I get from these people. I had a a guy came up to me. I did a I did an event with uh, with Armin, the founder of Atheist Republic, at the University of Toronto a couple of weeks ago, called a "Young Muslims Leaving Islam." The importance of freedom of speech for apostates. That was the name of the event. After the event, uh, this guy came up to me. He was, he was studying uh, religious studies at the university, and he said, "You know, I really like Sam Harris. I like a lot of things that Sam Harris says, but I never share his stuff because if I do, all my friends will descend on me. Mm. You know, I'm a liberal. All my friends are liberals. They will just call me an Islamophobe and a bigot, mm. and I might get the, the consequences for my workplace if they have my work people if they see what." whatever, you know, they're going to descend on me too. But when you say something, when you post something, you was talking to me, it's like I shared it. Mm. I'm comfortable with it. So this is, that's Josh Zepp's how terrorism works. That When you censor yourself because uh, of what I call Islamophobia, phobia, you know, the fear of being called Islamophobic or being called bigoted, you know, when, when you hold back what you really think, when you don't stand up for your values, when you condemn misogyny when it comes from Christian fundamentalists or from Donald Trump or from or anti-Semitism when it comes to the KKK, but the exact same things of the Quran, you just back off and say, hey, you know, sorry, I gotta respect their religion. It's a different culture. That's terrorism at work. You're, you're not well, let, let when, me, when you let don't me, one, let me quibble one, with just that framing. One, yeah, yeah, okay. Finish finish the you know, uh, and then I'll uh, sorry, just I, I just wanted to give uh, one example since we were talking about the cartoons. Is it when you decide not to print the Charlie Hebdo cartoons the morning after the attack, right, in your paper, even though that is a subject of, of the main news story, and over a dozen cartoonists were gunned to death in the name of Allah because of those cartoons, and you don't print them because you feel like that would um, 
inflame people or you feel like you, you that would radicalize more Muslims. You're not curbing terrorism. You're a victim of it. Yeah, agrees. These people and you're actually enabling it. So. You're actually enabling it. Right. Pardon the interruption, but right now at AT&T, you can get unlimited data and never pay overages again. Enjoy unlimited entertainment, surf, shop, binge, listen, navigate, stream, all that stuff. That means unlimited We The People Live, for the record, streaming anywhere. And did we mention that only the AT&T Unlimited Plus plan comes with HBO included? Well, it does. Learn more at att.com slash unlimited so you can enjoy your data and entertainment. After 22 gigabytes of data usage, AT&T may slow speeds. The plan includes StreamSaver, and videos will stream in standard definition unless you turn it off. Credits for HBO start within two bills. Channels available are subject to change. Charges, other usage, and restrictions apply, of course. See att.com slash unlimited for details. So I think there are a couple of... Um, I think you're conflating a couple of things. One is the security threat and terrorism. So I, after Charlie Hebdo, I was working at HuffPost Live at the time, and I argued that really all the big media institutions in the world should form a kind of what I call a cartel of freedom, uh, a, free, a free speech cartel, where the moment something like Charlie Hebdo happened and people were attacked violently or a fatwa was issued for someone writing a novel, that all we should have all the big major media institutions in the world, world pledge that when that happens, the next day they are going to publish it on the front page and they're going to show it on CNN and they're going to show it everywhere so that it becomes almost a a self-detonating bomb where editorial, it's like the spread the risk thing that you were saying, where editorial yeah, exactly. decisions can be removed from the equation altogether. And every Islamist knows that whichever infidel they kill, that infidel's speech is then going to be amplified a million fold and, and promoted across the world. So that it's going to be, going to be counter, A, counterproductive to kill anybody and B, impossible to go after anyone who does choose to reprint it because there'll be, there'll be too many of them. I take that, that that is, that to, to not do that is to be cowed by terrorism and to enable terrorism. But I think it's worth keeping distinct in our heads the other thing that you started off saying was terrorism, which is the fact that people aren't willing to share Sam Harris, but they are willing to share you, or that people like me uh, are unwilling to talk as honestly about Islam as I am because they think it'll come across the wrong way. For me, that's less about terrorism winning and more about identity politics for want of a of a hackneyed phrase winning or like um thinking about ourselves as i suppose representatives of of marginalized groups instead of as brains who are trying to communicate like it's like the your skin color and your sex now are super important in policing what it is that you can say i mean just look at bill maher using the n-word on television and all of a sudden the intensity of the backlash the groveling he was required to do on the subsequent episode the fact that it that the, his being a white man is itself the the only problem there that that is a joke that could have been made by an african-american very easily but we've reached a scenario where in so many different ways what's what's what you're judged first and foremost on is not the content of your ideas but it is the color of your skin and what group you belong to i think that even in the absence of terrorism that would still be a problem so i i think when you're talking about conflating i actually think those things are related right i i, I do think that that's um you know if they're if, if you're a like I'll, I'll tell you one thing the islamists and the fundamentalists 
right? And I don't like using the word Islamist because I don't know. There's there's no Christianists, you know. Any in any way, the, the like the, these people thrive on it. They know that this works, right? So th this is a form of this is part of their whole uh, the, what they want you to do when they want you to be in fear. It's not just fear of being bombed. It's not just fear of being. Uh, you know, of dying or, you know, dying in an explosion, whatever it is. It's also um, the, the fear of speaking up, right? That, that's part of it. They, they use, like, for example, the term Islamophobia, the very term Islamophobia, which conflates criticism of an ideology, which is Islam, with demonization of people, which is Muslims, right? So legitimate criticism of Islam and anti-Muslim bigotry, which are two completely different things, are conflated under this umbrella term, Islamophobia. And this is something the Muslim Brotherhood used a lot because it's a great tool. You can actually take the pain of genuine victims of anti-Muslim hate, which exists, and you can use it uh, and exploit it for the political purpose of stifling criticism of Islam. You can protect your religion from criticism. They can make sure nobody blasphemes against it. So in, in a way, that smear works like blasphemy laws. And I, I wrote in my book um, that over there, like in, in Pakistan, they had blasphemy laws laws to force us into silence. Over here, they've got the Islamophobia smear to shame us into it. So they the, uh, the identity politics aspect does play a part in it. And I think that it's related. I don't think it's, mm. it's two I'm not separate saying things. It's not related. The, the other... Yeah, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, well, just well, saying, I'm just saying that they're... I don't think that the white people who come up to you and say that they're too embarrassed to share Sam Harris because they'd be pilloried, that that they are doing that for security concerns. It's not because they're afraid. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're be doing it because they don't want to be. They, yeah, they don't want because to be we smeared, have established. Right? Yeah, we have established a consensus in white liberal circles that anytime you criticize uh, minority, minority, uh, yeah, mi minority groups, especially ones that are implicated in our guilt about colonialism, about our colonial past, especially ones that are majority brown people. The moment you criticize them, you you have treaded, you've triggered a tripwire, and you you're on dangerous ground. But it's not terrorist. It's not it's not dangerous ground because of terrorism. It's dangerous ground because of our own inability to speak in bullshit free ways with one another yeah, and but to be guilty. What I'm doing is. But like you know, you're, but when you say terrorism, it's not terrorism. You're thinking of terrorism as that defi the de definition of the word that is violence and you know people people dying, right? So that's not that I'm broadening the definition of terrorism. I'm right. saying that it's not just people dying. It's not just a dead body here or there, right? I'm saying that terrorism is you know zoom out a little bit and look at this as part of if there's any tool that they know works, if there's any tool that they know keeps you down. What are your fundamental values here? You know, free speech, being able to stand up for your values, um, you know, not just not judging things by the color of or judging people things, judging people by the color of their skin. These are the things that are part of the liberal conscience, and these are all things that liberals are now compromising on, um, largely for fear. Right, I of see. It's a kind of intellectual terrorism Muslims, yeah. that uses the same playbook as literal terrorism, but. On the in the in the landscape yeah. of ideas instead of the landscape of things, right? And and the ideas and that's really what I mean. Do you think that the the terrorists know they're not going to destroy physically be able to destroy the Western world? They're not going to be able to wipe out and kill everybody um, with the, the dirty bombs. I, I think they gave up on that hope a very long time ago. Now they're driving trucks into crowds, so they they've clearly demoted themselves in terms of their methodology.
right? In, in a lot of ways. So, so, but what they do know is they know that what that there are certain values that the West holds very dear, and they can chip away at it, right? That that that's terrorism. I mean, that, now terrorism is is different. It's not necessarily violent. There's cyber terrorism. Right? There's the hacking of elections. I mean, that that's a these these are forms of uh, just creating fear among people, right? Um, Right, but to I'm just advance saying a political purpose. I'm just saying that when you say terrorists know that they're not going to blow up the world, that's still in that you're still using the subset of of people as who are terrorists as the, the you're actors right. in this yeah, analogy. Right. What what's actually interesting right. about your analogy is is mm-hmm. that it's the non. No, I mean you're right that I I did kind of go into that definition of it. But what yeah. I really want to do is I want to zoom out. I want to broaden the definition, and I want people to start thinking of terrorism as more than just a bomb here or there. Right. right, and I, that, I want that there them are peace-loving of... people who would never dream of physically being physically violent towards another person, who are nonetheless partaking in a kind of a kind of psychological warfare and intellectual terrorism by making it forbidden to raise legitimate concerns about the civil war that's taking place at the fringe of Islam. Right, exa- exactly, and I, I think that you know when it comes to um, when you're talking about identity, identity politics, in, in some cases it is relevant, right? Like for, for instance, if if you're talking about, you know, cops pulling over people, right? If someone has black skin and they say, well, as a person of color, as a black man, you know, I can tell you that this experience is different for me. This is the, I would have experienced this in a way that you haven't. Um, it, they do have a unique perspective on it that they, they do, they can legitimately comment on in a way that the rest of us can't. So um, you, it, it isn't even that... Um, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that identity politics itself, on its own, uh, the way that it's used now, and the way the, the way that it's been inserted into everything is a really, really bad thing. But uh, there are certain things that I guess not identity politics, but there are certain identity related issues that are significant, and I, I think that does apply to a large extent with Muslims as people as well. A lot of Muslims who actually think of them, they have experiences. Uh, that are unique to their identity, right? That are, and that's a completely separate issue mm. from when you're talking about the criticism of Islam. Yes, when I criticize identity politics, I, I, I'm not, I don't mean to claim, to make the hard kind of uh, sort of almost white nationalist claim that there is no difference in our experiences of the world on the basis of our sex or gender or sexuality or ethnicity oh, yeah, or religion. I, I agree with you. My, agree my, with you. my point is, is rather that we get nowhere by policing one another on the basis of those divisions. And that if there is a difference between being pulled over by cops when you're black and being pulled over by cops when you're white, which I believe there is, then the way that we, we're going to resolve those differences is by communicating with each other in a dialogue and explaining, okay, well, when I get pulled over, this is what it's like. And when I get pulled over, this is what it's like. And of all the times mm-hmm. that I've been pulled, and I've been pulled over X number of times, and I've been pulled over Y number of times, and how many times were you frisked? How many times were you asked to get out of the car? How many times did they wave you along, even though you might have had a, a couple of beers? How many times? And by conversing about all of that as human beings, as individuals, then we can try to figure out if there are if there are biases and and uh, patterns of discrimination going on that we need to uh, to try to tackle. But the way to not solve it is by saying. You're not African American. There's no way you would understand. So let's not even have this conversation. You're the, you're part of the problem. I, yeah, I 100% agree with you. There's no disagreement there. Hmm. And um, one of the things is like the, the when it comes to the identity politics, I, I feel like that's the trajectory. When I was saying that all of this stuff is related, 
and, and they're not necessarily as distinct. I think that the, the the way that the left, especially, and you know, the right too, the right's really about white identity politics, and the left is about black and brown identity politics. The way that they've descended into it, uh, the trajectory shows that. For instance, um, you know, as you said, part of the liberal conscience is to protect the rights of minorities. The minorities should have the right to believe as they wish. So interestingly, a lot of the minorities that do vote Democrat in the U.S., for instance, you know, like Muslims, uh, like Blacks, like Latinos, you know, many of these groups have very conservative views. Latinos are very largely pro-life, um, more so than the general population. Uh, if you go to uh, Black churches, uh, homophobia is a lot more rampant there than, than people think. Uh, Muslim communities are pretty much, when it comes to social values, completely aligned with Republicans. Right? A lot of them are extremely conservative when it comes to social values. So what happens is, again, uh, when Donald Trump says something terrible about women, right? everybody slams him for being a misogynist. The same thing appears in the Quran, you know, or it comes from the Muslim community. Then you back off and you say that, no, this is, you know, we got to respect this. That means it's not about the idea anymore. It isn't. It's now about where the idea is coming from and who's expressing the idea. That's what determines if, if something is good or bad, not the idea itself. So it's, like, it's not like we're being consistent across the board and condemning bad ideas wherever they come from. It really depends who's saying it. And when you do that, it's not about ideas anymore. It's necessarily going to lend itself to identity politics. And that, that's that's where it comes from. So this, this idea of uh, the uh, I guess the the coddling and overprotection of uh, minorities in a sense, or not necessarily minorities, but but the the beliefs of the minorities mm. has the giving really, of free pass, uh, at least. Uh, yeah, it, you're, it's it's confused that and and I'll you know just to explain this a little bit further, um, you know the. When, when you protect a minority and their right to believe what they want to believe and to live as they live, that does not translate into defending the beliefs themselves. So one example in which this plays together, you know, when we're talking about the terrorism and uh, accommodation of Islamic values and how that gets all mixed up with identity politics is, is the Women's March, where the hijab was being mm. paraded as a symbol of feminism. I did, obviously, we're two men, and you know we shouldn't be talking about the hijab at all, uh, or women. <laughs> there you yeah. go with your identity politics again, right? I guess it, it, the only people who can tell the only men, the only people who can tell women what to wear, are not uh, men in the 21st century, but seventh-century Arab men, right? That's who've right. got divine revelations from God. Those are the men that uh, can mansplain mm -hmm. uh, what 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 to wear you know, for women. In any case, I'm digressing. The, so, so what happened was that you know, when they, they paraded this around, there are ways to show solidarity uh, with your friends, your good Muslim friends from childhood who you, you, know, you share a lot of good memories with and a lot of good experiences with and you genuinely care about without necessarily you know, putting on a symbol that you don't, you wouldn't agree with in any other context. Right, there are women. I, I host this podcast called Secular Jihadists from the Middle East. And one of the co-hosts that I have is a dear friend of mine named Yasmin Mohammed. Yasmin Mohammed grew up in Vancouver, Canada, uh, in a Salafist, ultra-conservative household. Uh, she wore the niqab and the burqa as a face veil and a full body cloak, the garbage bag, essentially, 
from childhood until she was an adult. When she was 20 years old, she was forced into a marriage with a man who was an Al-Qaeda militant who was personally trained by Osama bin Laden. Right now he's in jail in Egypt and uh, she had a child with him too. And she eventually busted out of there. And she went through years of, uh, I, I can't even describe him. She's writing a confession, she's writing a, a, a memoir called Confessions of an Ex-Muslim. And, and she left, she went to university, she's now remarried, she's happy, she hosts a podcast with us and um, she's a fantastic person. But on that day when they were parading the hijab around as a symbol of feminism, uh, she was really, really upset because she spent her whole life in Vancouver trying to fight not to wear, to, like, to get out of that. But here people were wearing it as a, as a symbol because, because of the how identity politics feeds into this. That's right. And I think so, so these also, things are all to be related. fair. I think people also don't know. They don't like white liberal. They don't know. They don't know. Women right. don't think that all they, the only experience they have is with the self-empowered westernized Muslim who's wearing the hijab in order to look chic. Uh, they don't, yeah. they don't really think through the fact that the vast, vast, vast majority of women who wear the veil in the world don't have any real say in the matter would be ostracized from their community, from their family, from their friends, and potentially even arrested if they didn't wear it. Yeah, but my, my wife has a really good analogy when it comes to the, the job. She says that it's, uh, and my, her name's Elishma. She says that it's like the Confederate flag. You know, you, you do have the right to wear one. It symbolizes your heritage and your identity, and, you know, you have free expression. Sure, sport one. Just don't forget the history. Mm. of that symbol and the traditional use of that symbol and what what its initial purpose was um so so they're both very similar you know when it comes to that pardon the interruption but if you like podcasts you'll like this because everyone's got a story about money right but your story is unique to you whether it's your student loans trying to reconcile an unexpected inheritance oh that'd be nice wouldn't it or saving up to buy a house no two stories are exactly alike and on Open Account, which is a podcast created by Umpqua Bank, the host, Suchin Park, and her guests share their stories about making money, losing money, and living with money. You hear from a former welfare recipient and homeless mother who went on to found a consulting firm that works to break the cycle of poverty in America. Uh, you hear from a retired fast food chain manager discussing his path to financial freedom. And from people who've learned how to navigate a life of inherited wealth. All of those stories are as unique as your own. And with Open Account, you're not alone in your financial journey. The new season starts on June 30th. So subscribe today to Open Account and you can download past episodes of Open Account wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy it. You mentioned earlier, Ali, uh, that it looks like jihadists have moved on from dirty bombs because uh, you know, they don't have the coordination capacity to be able to pull off big, large-scale events anymore. Um, they're, now they're just driving trucks into people. Uh, are you are you entirely sanguine that that will remain the case? It, it strikes me that with the with what's going on in Afghanistan, with the rise of extremism in Pakistan and Bangladesh, with us having no clue what Saudi Arabia will look like in ten or twenty years, whether Iran will have a bomb in ten or twenty years, what the hell's going to happen with Israel and what's the hell's going to happen mm -hmm. in Syria? That the I know I, I'm not totally saying when yeah. I, I don't think that I this is really when I say that 
it's an observation and it's i've got my fingers crossed as i say it so um it, what i obviously and, and again this is when every time we talk about this especially in twitter world you know it's just a and there'll be, be like a soundbite and I'll say something it's like, oh, he doesn't think terrorism's a problem anymore. That's, that's absolutely not what I'm saying. But I, I do think that um, we have had, we shouldn't be, like, we have had some success yeah. when it comes to fighting this, right? Well, We've I mean, just imagine success. if we were talking in October of 2001 and, and someone said to us, you guys are going to be talking to each other in 2017 in 16 years time, right? As far into the future as 2033 sounds like to us today. And uh, do you think there will have been any other 9-11 scale event? I mean, I would have said absolutely. This is probably, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Of course there yeah. would be. Um, so I would have thought there was, was going to be like a dirty bomb that's going to yeah. go off. Or, or a nuke, which is even worse. Yeah. So knocking on lots of wood and not wanting to tempt fate. I, I agree with you, but I still regard the the the, the collision between uh, jihadism and 20th century weaponry to be something totally and utterly chilling. And it brings us back to, I guess, what I'm interested in is your thoughts about how on earth one tries to avoid that fate. Because if the, if you don't really believe that Islam can be reformed, if you don't believe that, that it can go through the same process of um, moderation that's happened to Christianity and Judaism, then do you have any expectation that a billion Muslims are going so to walk let, away let me, from their faith? Let me expand it just on doesn't that. Seem that. Let me, me expand on that. So what I, what, I, yeah, so what I said was that Islam is itself, and again, I'm defining Islam as, uh, I'm, as far as the texts go, I don't think that can be reformed. I think the approach of going in and saying, well, you know, we can reinterpret the text, I think that's uh, assuming that a lot of the people who actually take this stuff seriously, the people we should be most worried about, would fall for that argument i don't know but think i don't that think that i don't think that they will and i don't think that they can and i don't think that yeah. that should be the aspiration right the aspiration right, again is right. not to convince abu Bakr al-baghdadi to change his mind about being a jihad uh, yeah yeah the, uh, that's uh, i'm the getting question to is that, the next the... generation of people to convince them to have a relationship to the quran that's similar to the relationship that jews have towards the torah in other words right so it's a nice holy text probably written by god who really cares pass me the matzah <laughs> That I think we can do, and that's actually what I was going to say. It's like that you can't reform that that religion itself. Like you know, I know some people are trying to say, well, you know, Aisha wasn't really six when she was married to Muhammad; she was actually eighteen. And here's how we can justify that. Those kinds of approaches are very common in Islam, and that's really what I'm trying to tell you. I I don't think that that's convincing uh, to anybody, right? When people say that the verse that says "beat your wife" actually means uh, to embrace your wife, there are people who actually say this, and they try to change the meaning of the verses. This is right now the predominant mode of moderating Islam that people are engaged in in the Muslim world right now. And I don't think that that is the right way to go about it. I don't think that there's a lot of hope for it. I don't think it's sustainable. However, if you take the entire text and you demote it, for instance, from divine word of God to divinely inspired word as written by Muhammad, I think that itself, and that, that the moment that that happened in Judaism, everything changed, mm. right? So the that I think is a more plausible way to reform. What's to the get, history of that get... happening in Judaism, though? You're not, you don't mean a moment, right? You mean centuries and centuries and centuries. Oh no, yeah, yeah, centuries and centuries. By the forces of modernity. Yeah, yeah. It, it took it took a very long time. 
It took a very long time. But we don't the, have uh, centuries, is my worry. <laughs> we don't have centuries in which we can proliferate nuclear weapons and and in which Western civilization and democracy and liberal democracy can be robust enough, I don't think, to withstand mm-hmm. the pace of terrorist attacks. We, we don't need right. centuries. We, we don't need centuries. I mean, that, that was a different time. We had a, okay. uh, that was before, I mean, forget the internet, that was before the printing press, right? So, mm. so there's, a, there's a great quote from Mariam Namazi, who's, uh, who's, uh, who runs the Council of Ex-Muslims for, uh, in Britain, right? Uh, or CEMB, which is a great organization. And uh, she said that the, the internet is doing to Islam what the printing press did in the past to Christianity. Right? So, so, and and it's, it's obviously a lot, it's a lot faster. Mm. Things are changing at a much more, almost exponentially faster pace than they used to do, but used to before. The world is a lot smaller and things more connected. The exchange of ideas is much more free, free flowing. So I don't, I don't think it'll take centuries. And I feel that, I feel that it's already happening. You know, when I, when we did that event, the, the event I told you about the University of Toronto, of uh, the free speech for apostates and Muslims leaving Islam. That is not an event in 2001 that we could have held. In 1991 or 1992, around the time that the whole Rushdie affair was happening, that, that was completely and utterly unimaginable mm. that we could even have an event and people could come to it and, and feel safe. So things have changed a lot, but a, a lot of that is going to be it's not going to be about changing the scripture, changing what the meaning of the scripture is and playing around with the words and doing the gymnastics. I don't think anybody's going to fall for that anymore because like I said, every 12-year-old kid can go up and they can see what the contents of the Quran are. They can look at the scripture and uh, they can make that decision for themselves. However, the way that you, it's, it's the same thing. It's not a goal. It's a process. You, critical thinking skills, scientific method, right? Uh, valuing uh logic, valuing the the scientific method and and Mm -hmm. reading things, processing how you process information. These are the kinds of things that I think reforming the way that Muslims think versus reforming the scripture itself is, I think, the right approach. And reforming the way that Muslims think, that that involves bringing in all these voices, involves bringing in former Muslim voices and hearing their approach. You know, yeah, I mean, that, the concern yeah. is that with, yes, the internet is, is fantastic at facilitating this, but, but my concern is that the amount of energy on the side of pumping out Islamist narratives, I know you don't like the word Islamist and we can touch on that as well, but, but oh, uh, no, no, that's conservative, fine. We can conservative that. Muslim narratives is just seems a lot more powerful around the world. I mean, here in our cloistered, uh, environment of secular humanists in North America and Australia, it might feel like we've got the upper hand, but I mean, if you start going on the internet and looking at explanations for of, about Islam and the battle between Islam and the West, there's a tremendous. It, it's a it's going to be a force for evil as much as it's a force for good, it's they have, or at they least have a force for extremism. More. Right, they have a way more clout. I mean, you look at the, those ISIS videos and how slickly produced they are. I mean, that's just one example of it. And um, and but I think that's why we're fighting on the wrong, we're using the wrong tools to fight this. When we're talking about uh, Muslim bans, when we're talking about walls and building walls, I mean, these are not things that are going to keep out ideas. These are not things that are going to keep out people getting radicalized, or, you know, again, they they call it radicalized, just people getting more religious, really, um, on the internet, right? It's not going to do that. Even if you deport people, even if you throw people out. They threw Anwar al-Awlaki out, right? He went into Yemen, 
every terrorist attack from Orlando to he was the U.S. Uh, the underwear bomber. who ended up becoming a really popular jihadist uh, spokesperson and who Obama actually ended up smoking, uh, causing big constitutional yeah. question about whether it's okay to to murder a right 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 an American they, 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 American citizen without a trial. Yeah, they'd groaned him in, in Yemen. Mm. He was in Yemen. He was an American citizen. He was from Nebraska. He was, he was well-educated. He got a PhD. Uh, and he he was deported. And he's he's dead now. And he's still more powerful. He has influence over every everybody. People living in the U.S., people carried out. Omar Mateen and the uh, the Orlando guy, the, this guy, um, the Boston Marathon bombers, all of these guys mm. used to watch his videos. That Nadal Hassan, the, the Fort Hood shooter, all of them watched his videos, uh, even though he was out of the country. So th- this is not something that, you know, you, you can throw him out. You know, you can build all the walls you want to. Mm. And uh, we can, killed him can, for his ideas. All, he's still living. People are still watching his shit. Mm. You know, like they, so, so the, the, the way that we fight these ideas, you know, what you're saying is, is what they have is they're using this platform and, and they're bringing out these ideas. The way to fight these ideas is with better ideas. And of course, it's going to start out slow. Right now, the they have the Islamist groups. I mean, they're organizing together and shutting down Facebook pages like it's nothing. It's a joke to them. We don't have that kind of organization. But that's the reason I, I'm starting out. That, that's the reason that I wrote my book. And and I'm I'm amazed that there aren't more books like mine uh, out there. I know Ayan Hirsi Ali's written about it. I've written about it. Ibn Warak has written a few. Uh, and apart from that, there really isn't. But there are loads. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of ex-Muslims. There are actually millions. Mm. Uh, that in uh, polling, the Gallup poll shows that there are uh, millions across the Muslim world. They're just closeted, and you never hear from them Let's unless talk they're about, being hacked to death on the street. Well, that's right. Let's talk about about walls then, and and the connection between ideas and individual human beings. Because I I completely agree with you that the Trump phenomenon of building walls and excluding people and imposing Muslim bans is totally counterproductive because it plays directly into the very narrative that ISIS wants us to believe, which is the world is separated uh, into Muslims and non-Muslims, and that the only way that we're going to live happily is for Muslims to follow true Islam and join a caliphate and for America to be an an anti-Muslim, non-Muslim country. Uh, so that so it actually bolsters the the extremist ideas. On the other hand, ideas are only dangerous insofar as they infect actual human beings who are located in actual places, willing to do actual things. And when you look at the fact that Syria now has bred a generation of people, and the invasion of Iraq has bred another generation of of people who are totally traumatized, uneducated kids who blame the West for the calamities that have befallen them, who are coming of age now. A lot of the ISIS recruits, the diehard ISIS recruits, came of age in Iraq when the, when, during the invasion. And all they remember is just total calamity of roadside bombs and American troops all over the place and have a chip on their shoulder about it. This was true also of the Manchester uh, concert bomber, right? He felt aggrieved at the, at the American bombs that he'd seen. In, people, in Libya. Yeah, people dying from in Libya. So now we've got, now we look at Europe and the Nice attacks and the Paris attacks and the London attacks and the Manchester attack. And the question gets raised amongst people in the West. Well, how many is too many? And how do we keep them out? And how do we manage that flow? And how do we tell the difference between the ex-Muslims who we want 
and the general Muslim populations who might turn into, I suppose, Muslim ghettos, conservative Muslim ghettos in the suburbs of our big cities and breed ideas that are more extremist than they were when these people came. So how do you, so you need some wall, which wall? Well, what you, it's, uh, you said it yourself, how do you differentiate? You have to differentiate between them. So when you interview them, when you screen them, uh, that's what you do. I mean, I came to Canada as an immigrant when I was 24 and uh, waited two years, right? And to, to be able to immigrate here. I, I, I came here with my family. I was a lot younger, so you know, I wasn't, they didn't ask us a lot of questions in terms of ideology. That threat wasn't such a big deal at the time. But uh, at this point, that's important. I, I think the answer is somewhere between open borders, which is completely insane. You know, like I, the, how I think in the UK, there are thousands of people who came back from Syria, British passports, fought for ISIS, came back now. Uh, that kind of thing is a problem. That's mm. crazy. On the other hand, you know, you have a... you. You a blanket Muslim ban, not the watered down one now in the six countries, but the original one that Trump proposed in 2015. And the real answer is somewhere between those two, right? And we do need to, I think, uh, talk about, uh, and we need to screen people in terms of how they think. We do have to do some behavioral profiling and a little bit of ideological profiling as well, like in, in the sense that uh, I mean, behavioral profiling is something that you know Israel's done forever. I mean, police departments and law enforcement does it all the time, and so it's not it's something that's necessarily racial or discriminatory in any way. It's 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 based on behavior. You mm. know, it's it's predicting. It, it's something that's uh, it, you can't you know uh, you can't just take an entire group of people and say that okay if they're if they're all Muslim we're going to ban them because I that that would include me. That way, Faisal Said al-Mutar, who I, I think you know. Yeah, I know Faisal. the Iraqi refugee. Yeah. Uh, he wouldn't have been here. Ayan Hirsi Ali wouldn't have made it out, right? Herself. If, yeah. Uh, and I'm glad you reminded kind of us that, that these, are, these are things that we actually know how to do, that law enforcement and security are actually really good at this. And so unless you're talking, unless you're a country in Europe, which is enduring uh, a stream of people who are literally able to walk from Syria or go by boat, uh, and 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 enter the country without being processed. If you're in North America, or if you're in Australia or New Zealand or Brazil, any other country that might be able to might have the capacity to take in refugees, it's it's a non-starter. It's a complete red herring for people to be critical of of moderate to high rates of Muslim immigration because there are so many Muslims mm -hmm. and so many good ones and so many secular ones that you could dramatically increase the the intake. And we do have the tools, the intelligence tools, to be able to 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 be fairly sure that 99.99% of them are, are fine. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and again, you know, it's really important to remember that, that people who are going to cause problems uh, here can cause problems here in the West when they're here, but they can also cause problems when they're not here. Mm. Right. And they can and, also and just come here that. to cause problems. I mean, they, you know, 9-11, you just come here on a student right. visa or you come here as a tourist. Right. That they, they can come here all, in all kinds of ways. So I, I don't think that that, is very effective. The, the other thing is just you, you just look at the numbers. I mean, look at all the people who've done this stuff so far. These have not been, uh, you know, for the most part, or even like almost rarely have they been immigrants or refugees or anything like that. A lot of times, you know, there's the sons of immigrants, the sons of refugees, 
uh, there's that. There's a couple that were they immigrated, they naturalized, like the Boston Marathon bombers. But um, for the most part, these are these are not people who are, who are jumping over borders illegally or coming in as refugees. Mm. So that that's not a good use of resources. The same resources that we're using to just blanketly keep out all refugees and all illegal immigrants, which are not really responsible for most of these terrorist attacks. Uh, we could be using that for smarter um, screening processes right, for, for immigration. So, Ali, I'll, uh, I'll let you go, but, uh, but final question. My concern over the past, I guess, 18 months since Brexit, and, oh, by the way, an analogy, when you mentioned U- the UK and people coming back from Syria into the UK, I heard a staggering statistic the other day, which I haven't fact-checked, but I'll repeat it anyway, which is that between, in the past three years, more migrants have entered the United Kingdom than since the dawn of time up until 1950. Wow. And, okay, yeah. and, the same, and the same number entered the three years before that and the same number entered the three years before that. So if that's true, you can understand it puts Brexit in, some, in somewhat of a, a new light. But um, yeah. either way. And, and I have to So I got to say one thing, though. I, I don't think it's, uh, I think we need to stop uh, you know, people who have concerns about immigration and about these large groups of people coming in and the questions of how they're going to integrate and, you know, the sheer numbers of them and whether the screening process is, is adequate or not. Uh, people have concerns about this. These are rational concerns. Like you, I may disagree with them in a lot of ways. I may not think that the ban is a good idea at all. I may not think open borders are good, is a good idea at all. But I, I don't think we should... Uh, treat this as bigotry. I agree, unless they are quite open about their bigotry. I mean, there are some people who I engage with on on Twitter who are quite open that they want a white, that they think that that majority white countries or exclusively white countries are better than other countries and therefore we shouldn't be a melting pot. That's bigotry. Twitter Twitter is a a cesspool (laughs) of, I I don't know why, Twitter, I've... (laughs) It's amazing, like, you know, sometimes, like, you, you go through these days when you don't really have a lot to do, so you get into Twitter, and then you start interacting with people, and you go, you're like, oh, my God, the world's so fucked up. And yeah. then you come into the real world, and you're like, and, oh, you actually, know, you're, it's not that bad. Co-workers, nobody's on Twitter. <laughs> I was like, Twitter? Oh, really? Yeah, who is that? Milo? Who is Milo? Nobody has any. Does he have a book? You know, where's his book? Where can I get his book? Is he, does he have he a Twitter soon, account? Don't worry. He will soon. I know. So. But, um, no, no, I know. He's so, but yeah, no, I think that's, that's, a good, uh, that's a good thing for us to bear in mind. But uh, my final question was just going to be that since Brexit and Trump, my worry has become less that the world is going to be undone by outside forces like terrorism or, or mass immigration and more that we're going we're gonna to blunder into undoing it ourselves because we are not mature enough to deal with uh, a constant background din of terrorism and we're going to allow ourselves to freak out and elect silly, unqualified extremists like Donald Trump and gradually undo the fabric of Western liberal democracy bit by bit. Um, I'm not saying that I think that's going to happen. I'm saying that I, that previously it never even occurred to me as, as a possibility. And so are you, where's your head at with the, with the fate of Western civilization, Ali? Are you an optimist or a pessimist? This, Josh, this is exactly what I was saying when I was talking about zooming out when it comes to the definition of terrorism, is that it's the purpose of terrorism really is to have us unravel and compromise on all of the things that we hold dear and our values. Whether it comes to, uh, you know, the, the, 
actually, you know what? Let me outsource this, and I'm going to quote uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Oh, this. There's an analogy that he gave about how terrorism works. It's not. Uh, he the said bull it's not the, the bull in the china shop yes. with a bee in it. Can I, can I, yeah, tell it. Yeah, sure. Do you want to say it? And I, no, I can, no, you go for I, it. I'm okay. So he said that it wasn't. It, terrorism isn't the bull in the china shop that goes and destroys. It's the, it's the fly that's buzzing in the ear. Incessantly of the bull, right, in the china shop, that drives a bull so crazy that it goes and just destroys the whole thing. And, th- and this is what it is. What terrorists do? They they're that fly that is buzzing in your ear and it's driving you crazy and it's causing you to overreact. And as you know, Dr. Harari says, it captures your imagination and you start fearing the worst and you go and you essentially cannibalize yourself bit by bit. Mm. That is how this stuff works. And, and I, I do think, as I said, when people are too afraid to speak up, uh, they're too afraid to stand up for their values, uh, when they're too afraid to print cartoons, when they're like, oh, if we criticize Islam, it's going to radicalize Muslims uh, too much. That's, they're, they're, not, uh, they're not curbing terrorism at all. They're, they're, they've become victims of it. That's Ali, it works. thanks for speaking up. Thanks for standing up. Thanks for being on We The People Live. Thank you, Josh. Ali Rizvi's book is The Atheist Muslim, A Journey from Religion to Reason. You can follow him on Twitter. Support this show on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTP. Become a citizen of We the People Nation. And until next time, make debate healthy again. Bye.